are listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. Welcome to another episode of Ideas on Trap podcast, where we discuss ideas that promote progress, prosperity, and economic development. We do this by speaking to academics, industry experts, and other creative social thinkers. My guest on this episode is Robert Frank, professor of economics at Cornell University, New York. Robert is my favorite economist because he presents complex ideas in simple, intuitive details. His work straddles the nexus of economics, psychology, and biosocial ecology. He has written many interesting books over the years, of which I have read three, and I picked the central themes of those books for our conversation today. We started by discussing his latest book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. In the book, Robert explored the idea of behavioral contagion and its many implications. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope you learn as much as I have and continue to do from Robert. Ideas on Trapped is sponsored by iInvest. iInvest is Nigeria's foremost digital platform for treasury bills and now the preferred financial services marketplace in Africa. That gives you access to investment opportunities from various financial services providers within one safe and secure platform. iInvest enables you to grow your income and savings by making your money work for you. You will have real-time access to an array of products like treasury bills, fixed deposit notes, commercial papers, euro bonds, equities, and many more conveniently from anywhere in the world. Start using iInvest today by downloading the app on both the Google Play Store and your iOS App Store. Thank you for joining us, Robert Frank. It's my pleasure, Toby. I enjoyed your last three books. That's Down in Economy, Success and Luck, and the latest one, Under Influence. So I'm going to start with your last and the latest, in which you try to encourage us and even policy to use peer pressure to solve some of the serious problems that humanity is facing. So one particular idea you use throughout the book is behavioral contagion. Can you expatiate on the basic idea? What do you mean by behavioral contagion? Uh, Behavioral contagion is a term that social scientists use. It it describes how ideas and behaviors often spread from person to person in ways that are quite similar to the spread of contagious diseases. A simple example is smoking. Uh, If you are worried that your daughter may smoke someday, it's not helpful to ask what kind of person is she? Does she like sports? Is she good in English? Does she like mystery novels? None of those things are very predictive of whether she'll smoke. The one piece of information that would tell you more than any other is the percentage of her friends who smoke. And if that number were to go up, say, from 20% to 30%, then she would become 25% more likely to become a smoker. Uh, There's no other effect that's remotely comparable to that in size. And it's an old idea in social scientists that what others around us do heavily influences what we do. So that's always been something that we've known. What's also true, but is much less remarked upon, is that the things we do, the choices we make, influence the social environment. And yet very few people would worry, oh, I shouldn't become a smoker because that way I'll make other people more likely to smoke. Most people don't want to smoke. Most people don't want their kids to smoke. Uh, People who do smoke wish they hadn't started. But the influence we have on others by smoking is something that very few of us take into any account when deciding whether to smoke. And that's the missed opportunity. If there were simple ways to encourage us to act as if we cared about our effect on the social environment, that would be a good thing. And it turns out there are many simple, unintrusive ways for us to do that. I get this feeling a lot where every time you have a new book out or I read one of your papers, which I think Paul Roma on one occasion was puzzled, I should say, about why your work is not more popular than it is. 
So what I want to explore around this area is why is this basic idea of behavioral contagion so not acceptable in policy circle or not as accepted as it should? Do you think it is because we think it strips the individual of agency in decision making? That's one of the objections you hear. So if I smoke, I make everybody in my peer group more likely to smoke. That's, in fact, the biggest harm other than to myself that I cause is to make others more likely to smoke. We uh, never regarded that as an acceptable reason to try to discourage people from smoking. I think the feeling, as you suggest, is that if somebody sees a friend smoking, well, that's really the person's responsibility to decide for himself whether to copy that behavior. It's not a proper responsibility of the state to intervene there. And I must say, I, I admire the sentiment that motivates that concern. People should take responsibility for their own behavior, absolutely. But the issue is, do we cause harm? And the answer is we cause harm not just to the others who start smoking. It's true. They have recourse. They have agency. What about the parents of the people who start smoking? They've invested an enormous amount of their own concern and love and energy trying to create conditions under which their kids would be less likely to smoke. Now, their friends start smoking, they start smoking, they have failed at a very important life goal. That has caused harm to them, and they have no recourse. There's nothing they could do to have prevented that. So I think the idea of what constitutes harm to others really is for us to rethink. If we put it in the context of the, the COVID pandemic, people say, oh, I have a right to go about my business, uh, have any right for the government to intervene and force me to wear a mask. That's my decision. Well, if it were only your outcomes at stake, that would be one thing. But by not wearing a mask, you're more likely to become infected. Too bad for you, but that's your business. But you're more likely thereby to infect others. What would give you the right to expose others to a, an illness that could kill them? that they have no recourse about. So I think the question of harm to others is really one that's ripe for a rethinking. We cited the exposure to secondhand smoke as the reason for regulating smoking, for taxing it and prohibiting it in public places and so on. The harm caused by exposure to secondhand smoke is very minimal compared to the harm caused by becoming a smoker. So that's a very small harm you cause by exposing people to secondhand smoke. The big harm you cause is to make others more likely to smoke. And it's not to say that we should force people to refrain from smoking. There are very simple steps we could take, in particular the taxation of cigarettes, which we started doing in the United States significantly in the 1980s, was a very effective tool over the long run at limiting the smoking rates. Now uh, less than a third what it was when we started doing that. And every dollar you raise in a tax on cigarettes is a dollar less you need to raise in a tax on some useful activity. So back to your original question, why aren't we doing that? My response is, I think we have not thought clearly about this issue. Uh, if, we, if we do think clearly about this issue, we would quickly conclude that it would be uncontroversial to try to take peer responses to individual behavior into account in those ways. So smoking is one example you used throughout the book for good reason. And it's one area where the United States has made significant progress. But I want to talk about that versus other threats that we face as a people. For example, climate change, which is serious and existential. Do you think the way that we as humans assess risk can also stand in the way of either policy or the way we debate it? and the acceptability of how the contagious nature of our actions can actually be a net negative. So for someone like smoking, whether it affects me or the other person, the harm can be easily quantified, I should say. I mean, whether lung cancer to me or to someone I know, but for something like climate change, the risk and the harm is not... It's not personalized, you know, there's no face to it, supposedly. So do you think that's a challenge? In, in yeah, Yes, I think uh, climate change is much, much more challenging for our human psychology to deal with. We're not born with instinctive moral reactions to the presence of invisible 
gases in the atmosphere that science tells us could cause harm in the long run. We're much more attuned to very visible, vivid, immediate threats. Our nervous systems seem to value the immediate costs and benefits of situations we encounter much, much more heavily than the long-run costs and benefits. And, and I think that in the threatening environments in which we evolved, that made perfectly good sense because if you didn't get through the next day, what did it matter what happened 10 years or 100 years from now? But now I think we know very clearly that continued emission of greenhouse gases is going to create enormous harm to the planet and to the people living in it. The book I recommend on climate change for people who haven't already read it is The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. It's by David Wallace Wells, and it's a very careful, systematic review of the available evidence. And it's very difficult to read that book and not come away believing that if we stay on the current trajectory that we're on, there will be hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of climate refugees battling for resources by the end of the century People we know, people we love are going to be suffering enormously if we don't take action. There is action we can take. The technologies exist to get to carbon neutrality within the next couple of decades. They'll be expensive, but we have the money to do it. And failure to do it is just an unimaginably reckless step given where we stand in our history. So it's not, it's not the kind of threat that's psychologically easy for people to absorb and deal with, but we've had a lot of time now to be exposed to the relevant scientific evidence. And I think at this point, we simply must act. And I think people who doubt that just need to expose themselves a little bit more forcefully to the available evidence. So without falling into the trap of some kind of Orwellian fallacy, do you think that in some cases people are right to be skeptical of government overreach and things like that when we fully accept the implication of contagion in our behavior and the right of governments to act? Yes, I think being vigilant against government overreach is an absolutely prudent stance at all times. We know that if the government isn't carefully watched and held accountable for what it does, then oftentimes it gets populated by people who serve their own interests, not the public interest. So I think, yes, being vigilant about what the government does is an absolutely prudent posture to strike. And I think one of the things I would worry about if the public understanding of the implications of behavioral contagion grew more widespread is that it might embolden nanny state types to try to regulate everything in a heavy-handed way. I think there are checks against that possibility, and I think we need people who are vigilant about individual liberty more than ever because uh, it used to be we didn't bump into each other that much, and so the government didn't have to regulate all that much. People could do pretty much what they wanted, but that's less and less the case as we get more and more bumping into one another in various ways. The need to give people incentives to behave in ways that put the community's interests first and, and not their own individual interests when those conflict is going to be essential for our survival. So yeah, it's a fine line to walk, but it's one we better start walking. One other thing I, I've been thinking about reading some of your work and this book in particular is sometimes I wonder why how contagious our behavior is to people around us does not feel more intuitive to us. It's biology, it's our psychology, it's our nature wires. Yes. But but in today's world, you just get so much resistance. Do you think it is because of the, should I say, the political design of modern institutions and how it influences how we socialize? What are your thoughts? Well, in the United States, we've had... Uh since before Ronald Reagan, really, but accelerating since him, an attitude of hostility toward government. Reagan famously said in his first inaugural address, the most frightening sentence in the English language is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. He said, government's not the solution, government's the problem. And so the whole Milton Friedman-esque line of thinking that the government is always and everywhere a source of negative outcomes for an economy has taken root in a way here that I think it hasn't so much taken root in other countries, although it's more prevalent now than it used to be. 
Uh, that's a, a very influential line of thinking. I think we're starting now to wake up to the idea that what's in every individual's interest to do doesn't always add up to what's in our interest to be done. So simple examples are everybody stands up to see better at an event. Nobody sees any better than if everybody had remained comfortably seated. There are just a host of examples in which rational individual behavior produces outcomes that we don't like. And that's really the central rationale for collective action. And, and collective action sometimes can be done privately, but often it's most efficiently carried out by government. And I think we have not really seen clearly up until now the collective action problems that are inherent in behavioral contagion. It's in my interest to behave in a certain way. It's not in our interest that we all behave that way. So once we see that there are simple changes in incentives that we can put in front of people that will induce them or encourage them to act as if they cared about the consequences for others of what they do, uh, I think there's enormous progress we can make without having to demand painful sacrifices from anybody. That's mm. good news. Not to push back, but... You find that even in cultures or in countries where they may not necessarily subscribe to America's individualist ethos, that's me saying that is uh, Ronald Reagan, like you said, that are more accepting of a more communitarian ethos, so to speak. You don't really see policy making good use of this idea, in my opinion. Like even in America, a lot of progress has been made on smoking than in some other countries that do express a culture of communitarianism, so to speak. What are your thoughts? You know, we made progress, but the actions we took that led to the progress were for the wrong reasons. Uh, we weren't willing to impose taxes on cigarettes at the level we did, the, the high enough tax rates to really affect behavior until we saw studies coming out of Japan that said that exposure to secondhand smoke increased the likelihood that others would contract certain diseases. Those are valid studies. The effects are real, but they're very small compared to the, the real harm that you cause by being a smoker. So we did the right thing, but we did it for the wrong reason. And I think you're not really giving up anything critically important if you try to put gentle incentives in front of people to encourage them to behave in ways that are more consistent with what the community's interests are. We know, for example, that you have to tax something. Uh, we have people in the U.S. that say all taxation is theft. What a silly idea that is. If you don't have taxation, you don't have a government, then you don't have an army. You get invaded by some country that has an army, and then you pay tax to that government. So you have to tax something. Why not tax activities that cause harm to others or that create social environments that are harmful to all of us? If we tax those things, we can cut the taxes on other things. So we're not giving up any freedom. We're not imposing any additional burden on anybody. If we taxed carbon, we could encourage people without banning meat from the diet, without banning cars without doing any, any of the things that would be far more heavy-handed by way of regulation. We could encourage people to make the kinds of changes that would have the same aggregate impact and leave their own freedom to choose intact. One other idea which you've definitely expressed elsewhere, which features also heavily in the book, is the notion of expenditure cascade. Personally, I have struggled to explain this idea to my friends, so maybe you do a better job than I. How does it work? How does it? Because people like to think that I have a control over my spending. I know what I want. <laughs> so it is not other people or other households who decide how I spend right. my money. What's the fallacy? Yeah, I, I think the reason that people don't think clearly about this issue is that they think being influenced by other people's spending is, they describe that as keeping up with the Joneses. And that expression is one I urge younger colleagues never to use in connection with studying these issues because it conjures up a vision of insecure people who are trying to appear richer than they really are they're shallow, they don't have firm beliefs in their own worth, they have to demonstrate their worth by their possessions. That is not really what the phenomenon is about at all. 
it all stems from the deep link between context and evaluation. Uh, that affects every human evaluation. You can't answer a question, is something good? Is it hot? Is it far? You can't answer any question at all of that sort without a suitable frame of reference. So imagine that you're taking your daughter to see her grandparents and she asks you, are we almost there yet? Well, suppose there are 10 kilometers left on a 12 kilometer journey. What will you say? Oh, no, we've just started. We've got a long way to go. What if those same 10 kilometers are left on a 200 kilometer journey? You'll say, yes, we're almost there. Context shapes every event. Is it hot out? Is it cold out? Suppose it's 16 degree Celsius day in Montreal in March. Is it cold out? People think you're stupid for asking the question. Of course it's not cold. Look at everybody celebrating the warm day in their shirt sleeves. If it's a 16 degree Celsius evening in Miami in November, uh, they think you're stupid if you ask if it's cold out because obviously it's cold out. You're wearing the heaviest outer garments that you have in your closet if you go out on a night like that in Miami. So evaluation depends on context. Is my house okay? I lived in a two-room house with no electricity or running water for two years when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal. Never during those two years at, a, at any moment did the house seem in any way unsatisfactory. It was always a perfectly suitable place to invite friends over, to entertain, to hang out myself. It was, it was a totally satisfactory house. It was, in fact, a nicer house than most of the other teachers in my school lived in. If I lived in that very same house here in Ithaca, New York, it would not be satisfactory at all. It would be a visible signal to the world that I had failed abjectly to live up to even the most minimal demands of social existence. And you might say, well, so if you can't afford any house better than that, suck it up and buy the house you can afford. In fact, there's a cost to not being influenced by what others spend. Uh, if you're a parent, you want to send your children to the best possible school. Well, what we know is that everywhere, the better schools are in the more expensive neighborhoods. So if you're the median earner in your society and you want to send your children to a school of just average quality, and we'd think ill of you as a parent if you didn't have at least that ambition to send your kid to a school of at least average quality, what must you do? you must get access to the average quality house in your area, average price house in your area. And if others are spending more and you don't spend more, it's your kids who will go to the inferior schools. And so, of course, parents will move every obstacle in order to be able to send their kids to better schools. But that's the expenditure cascade. The people at the top are building bigger because they have more money. The people in the middle don't get angry about that. They like the pictures of the mansions. The people just below the top who do socialize with the people at the top, now they need a bigger ballroom because it's the custom now for their daughter to get married at home, not in a hotel or a country club. They build bigger, and then the people just below them, now they need a dining room seating 18, not just 12, because that's the custom now in the second rank homes. They build bigger, and without referring to that cascade, there's no way to account for the fact that the median new house now built in the United States is 50% bigger than it was in 1970. Uh, the expenditures of others influence what you must spend in order to achieve basic goals. If you don't wear a good suit to your interview, the recruiter may not even be able to remember what color your suit was, but he'll remember whether you looked the part. And if the others are wearing expensive suits and you're not, you won't get a callback. If the others are driving 2,500-pound cars and somebody buys a car weighing 5,000 pounds, that person suddenly becomes much safer than everyone else and everybody else at greater risk of injury and death. Their best bet is to buy bigger, too. And then we're all driving 5,000-pound cars. And in that situation, everybody's risk of injury and death is bigger than before. So, yeah, there are all these situations where what you need to do to achieve your goals just depends critically on what others do. Exploring this idea of expenditure casket further, I think about some industries or sectors that touch on our daily lives where people are dealing with ever-increasing costs, like housing, uh, which you've also talked about, like education. And I look yes. at alternative explanations, say, in the economic discipline, something like the Bumhall effect, you know. And yes. in my personal opinion, I think the idea of expenditure caskets better capture the so-called cost disease than the Bumhall effect. 
But I don't see economists accepting this idea or embracing this explanation so much. Is it because it's a difficult idea to model formally? Or do you think there are some implicit biases at play? Uh, uh, it's not because it's a difficult idea to model formally. Uh, many of us have modeled it. You know, I, I get discouraged. The profession has been as reluctant as it has to embrace these notions more fully, but my junior colleagues, many of them, remind me that it's dramatically different now uh, from how it was when I was first starting to work on all this. There are many, many more people who are actively modeling these behaviors and doing empirical research, demonstrating the size of the effects and so on. So there's been a lot of change. But but yes, it's it's discouraging that it's still a minority activity in the profession. Behavior is contagious. You know, I'm, I'm an old man now. I don't know if I'll live long enough to see it catch fire and, and sweep through the profession and turn everything in a different direction. But I'm still hopeful that that will happen at some point, whether I see it or not. You know, the bone mall disease is real, but the escalation in the cost of higher education is not mainly due to that. Uh, it's true we give lectures in front of students from yellow notes the same as before, but the main thing is that we now have this incredible arms race for the credentials that get you the highest paying jobs, and that means there's been a bidding war for the star faculty a bidding war for the star students, uh, all the things that go into the rankings formulas that confer academic prestige are the real drivers of inflation in higher education. This leads us to consumption tax, which is another very big idea of yours. I saw an exchange on Twitter yesterday where someone was talking about why we need to start promoting the idea of consumption tax and someone mentioned that it's an idea that you have been talking about since the 80s so i guess you must feel like a prophet sometimes <laughs> it's a simple idea and it's discouraging that it hasn't been taken up actively all around the world but again ideas happen when they happen they're very idiosyncratic it's not just whether the idea makes sense but whether the climate is right for the idea to take root and spread so just in the last months i've been invited to participate in a panel in the uk where they're studying the adoption of the progressive consumption tax it's it's a simple measure it's like the progressive income tax, but with one important difference. You report your income to the tax authorities just as you, you do now. We could simplify that to our advantage. Then you document your savings, as many of us have long done for tax-exempt retirement accounts. And then it's the difference between those two numbers, your income minus your savings, that is how much you spent during the year. And that amount minus a big standard deduction is what we would tax at very low rates for small values of the number. Ideas Untrapped is sponsored by iInvest. iInvest is Nigeria's foremost digital platform for treasury bills and now the preferred financial services marketplace in Africa. With iInvest, you have access to various investment opportunities in one safe and secure platform. iInvest enables you to grow your income and savings by making your money work for you. Visit iInvestNG.com for real-time access to products like treasury bills, fixed deposit notes, commercial papers, euro bonds, and equities. Or download the app on Google Play Store and iOS App Store today. So the idea of income inequality has exploded in its popularity since the publishing of Thomas Piketty's book. Do you think consumption tax is something that better addresses that issue than the conventional income tax or the idea of the wealth tax that is becoming more popular with people on the left? The consumption tax would reduce consumption inequality. And in terms of the experience of daily life, it's consumption inequality that is far more costly than income or wealth inequality. But income and wealth inequality are also costly. If you had a consumption tax, the rich would be much better able to take advantage of the fact that savings is not taxed until they're eventually spent as consumption. And so 
it would actually make wealth inequality worse than it currently is. And that's a reason why I've long advocated that if we're going to adopt a progressive consumption tax, where we tax your annual consumption expenditure, the difference between your income and your savings, that we retain as an important part of the tax system a very robust estate tax. The estate tax is the very best tax we have. You pay it after you're dead. It's not painful. It's like a lawyer's contingency fee contract. The government tells you when you're young, you don't know whether you're going to be rich or not. Probably you won't be extremely rich. You won't pay any estate tax. If you are rich, then you'll pay an estate tax after you die. If you agree to that, then you get better roads, better schools, better hospitals, better version of every public service while you're alive. Uh, what's not to like about the estate tax? The wealth tax, I think, under the current developments during the pandemic, the case for the wealth tax has grown incredibly compelling. You know, what we've seen is that the world's billionaires have seen their wealth increase by a factor of two during, during the pandemic. There's no need to have wealth at that level. It's corrupting in multiple ways. And so a tax, especially a modest tax of the sort that Senator Warren has proposed, would be a hugely beneficial thing for the society to enact. It would pay for public services that would be of enormous value, not just to low and middle income people, but the very wealthy who would be paying the additional taxes. And it wouldn't cause them to make any sacrifices of any consequence at all. They already have more money than they could spend. What would they be giving up if they paid a wealth tax? Nothing. Mm. Let's move on to the issue of success and luck, which was your last book before this one. And I mean, in discussing this again with my friends, I discovered that a lot of highly successful, highly intelligent, and perhaps accomplished people that I know get incredibly offended if maybe some part of their success is attributed to luck or some kind of good fortune. So please help me out here. What are the nuances between luck or good fortune and personal efforts? What, yeah. what is the yeah, best yeah, way to understand this? That's a great way to put the question because I think a lot of people mistook the message of success and luck as saying that luck explains success, uh, skill and effort aren't important. That is absolutely not the message of the book. One of the things I try to stress in the book is that the modern economy is quite different from the traditional economy in the sense that technology now allows the people who are the best at what they do to serve broader and broader fractions of the world market. So if you were a good tire producer, you once had a near monopoly in a small region of the country, then it was a, a larger region, then the national market became your playground, and now it's the entire world market, only a handful of tire producers serve the, the whole thing. Uh, and that's true in almost every arena. Pianos were once manufactured within a very short distance of where people bought them. Why? Because they were so hard to transport. Now, with transport costs having fallen so dramatically, there's only a handful of piano manufacturers all around the world. So in these markets, I call them winner-take-all markets, there's generally a shootout, a competition to see who's the best performer because the best performer essentially can serve everyone. The finalists in these tournaments, there are often thousands of initial contestants, the finalists are all incredibly talented, incredibly hardworking. The ones who are realistic competitors to win are all near the limits of human talent and effort. So let's look at them. There they are, a group, maybe a hundred of them, all struggling for the top spot. Find the one who has the highest talent and the highest effort expenditure of the lot. There he is. He's right up against the limits of talent and effort. There are others behind him who are up against those same limits. The one with the highest talent and effort will have, on average, only average luck. Why? Because we selected him not for his luck, but for his skill and effort. That will be true of all the others behind him who have less talent and effort. But there are many of them crowding in right behind him. And the ones among those people who are the luckiest will have had good luck indeed. Even if luck counts for only a tiny sliver of total performance, that's all it takes for the luckiest of the runner-up in the talent and effort contest to emerge with the highest performance and, and walk away with all the rewards from that market. So 
it's not to say that talent and effort don't matter. They matter enormously. You're not even a finalist if you don't have that. But unless you're lucky, you're not going to win. And realizing that luck played a role in your success has an enormously beneficial effect on your outlook toward the world. You're much more humble. You're much more willing to invest in public projects that increase others' chances of success. And you're right. If you if you remind successful people that they were lucky, they tend to get angry. No, I did it all myself. An effective tactic, I found, is not to tell them that they were lucky, but just ask whether they can recall examples of times in their own history when they enjoyed the benefit of a lucky break. And typically, for some reason, they don't get angry at that question. They think about it. When they think of an example, they seem excited to tell you about it. Telling you about it kindles the memory of another example. They tell you about that, too. And and soon they're saying, why aren't we investing more in the schools? Uh, so... So, yeah, I, th I think recognizing that luck had something to do with your success is a hugely important step. It makes you more likely to feel grateful for your privileged position. If you feel grateful, you're happier, you're healthier, you sleep better. There's an enormous cavalcade of benefits that follow from experiencing the emotion of gratitude. But it also makes you more willing to support public policies that enable society to succeed. Looking at this and... I mean, thinking about this, sometimes I try to maybe do intertemporal or intergeographical comparisons on the issue of luck. I still recall your chilling description of your experience with a heart attack in the book and how incredibly lucky that was for you, which I agree. But again, that may not be the experience of someone living in other parts of America, for example, with the healthcare system. And even from where I am in Nigeria, the experience can be vastly different. Also, you look at people who are highly intelligent, working incredibly hard in countries with low productivity and low returns to their efforts move to high productivity countries and become incredibly successful. So I'm wondering what we call luck or what you are describing as luck, is it not a product of human ingenuity in and of itself? Maybe in areas of governance and having credible social arrangements? Yes, of course. But that takes it out of your hands in, in part. In the book, I describe the experience of my cook when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal, who was without any question in my mind, the most resourceful person I think I've ever dealt with in a close capacity like that. There was nothing he couldn't quickly learn to do and do at a very high level. His meager income that I was able to pay him while I was there was probably the apex of his lifetime earnings trajectory. There was just no opportunity for him in Nepal to make use of the talent that he had as a human being. He was a member of a low caste. He didn't have any formal education. There was no way he was going to be able to thrive in that environment. And I think if you ask successful people that you, you know who think they did all of themselves, to say, how would it have turned out for you if you were born in a war-torn, very poor country? You know, I think most of them probably understand that things wouldn't have turned out quite as well for them. Describe, if there's any, some of the myths you think surrounds our current conception of meritocracy. You know, certainly in some parts of America recently, we are seeing some pushback against some form of merit-based social arrangements. Some districts or states are scrapping standardized testing, and a lot of people are condemning the idea for different reasons. But what are the general myths that surround the idea of meritocracy as currently conceived? The term meritocracy was coined by a sociologist in England, and it was a pejorative term in his framework, he thought that the promotion system in England became very formulaic and, and encouraged people to build their lives according to these formulas, and you weren't really getting the best people, you were getting the people who were best able to work the formula. And I, I think we see a, a strong measure of that in this country, too. It's the people who have the ability to play to the formula who seem to do the best under the, the system we have. 
I think it's not obvious that many of the reforms we're considering are going to be better. So when we, in the university system, get rid of the SAT, the Scholastic Aptitude Test, then uh, it's been shown that the essay that the schools ask students to write assumes greater importance in admission decisions. And if anything, coaching and parental resources have much more influence on how you do on the essay that you submit as part of your application than your performance on the test scores. So, so yeah, we've got to be careful. It's hard to argue that you shouldn't hire the most qualified people for the job. Of course, that's a good thing to do. But I think formulas and what counts as excellent is definitely ripe for a rethinking. So years after writing your book, The Darwin Economy, would you say that the transactional cost revolution in economics and policy has lived up to its promise? Because we seem to be seeing a world where people no longer think about the trade-offs and the costs of some of their policy propositions. So how, how do you feel about that? Uh, I've always been a, a huge fan of the late economist Ronald Coase. He died at age 103 a few years back. His paper that was cited by the Nobel Committee when he was awarded the prize, well, there were two in particular, but one was called The Problem of Social Cost, and it had to do with uh, if there are ways in which we interfere with one another. If I, if I produce a product and the smoke gets in your eyes, then we have incentives if we're able to transact with one another efficiently. We have an incentive to resolve that problem in the most efficient and the least costly way, no matter whether the government makes me liable for the damage I cause to you or not. Why? Because if we adopt the least cost solution, in some cases that might be for you to move away from the smoke, that might be less costly than for me to filter it out. But no matter who has the least costly response to the problem, we will adopt it if we're able to, to negotiate costlessly with one another. But the main thrust, and I think that was the message that conservatives latched on to in COSA's work, oh, we don't need to regulate anything because people can always negotiate efficient solutions. The main message of Coase's work, however, was not that. His early paper that the Nobel Committee also cited was that transaction costs were prohibitive in the typical case, and that's why we saw firms organized to do everything by fiat within the firm rather than have people transact with one another as independent agents to get all the parts and assemble the various things you would need to have to make a car. We have a firm just does all that thing that tells people to do. Why is that? Because it's too costly to negotiate each of those transactions. And so once you recognize that transaction costs are at the heart of the matter, then you see a gold-plated case for government having a role of building the law so that it places the responsibility for dealing with problems that spill over onto one another onto whichever party can solve it in the least costly way. And sometimes that'll be to make the noise maker liable for the damage he causes. Sometimes it'll be to ask the person damaged by noise to put earmuffs on. Uh, one prediction you made in that book was that 100 years from... I mean, when whoever was reading it was reading it, that Darwin is going to be more influential in economics than Adam Smith. How do you feel about that prediction? Well, I, I chose the 100-year mark purposely, knowing that I wouldn't be around to suffer the consequences of being wrong about it. Uh, the, the reason for the prediction, though, I think still seems valid to me. It's that Smith still is wrongly most known for what his modern disciples call the invisible hand theorem, which they think he thought meant that you could turn people loose and have them pursue their own interests in the marketplace and you'll get the best possible outcome for society as a whole. That was, of course, not Smith's view. What was more remarkable to him was that you often got good results from self-seeking actions in the marketplace. What Darwin saw, I think more clearly than Smith, was that the traits and behaviors that are favored by competition in nature, by natural selection, are the ones that benefit individuals and that those sometimes benefit the larger group. The keen eyesight that was molded for hawks is, is good for individual hawks and for hawks as a group. But many traits that are selected for individual advantage are positively harmful to larger groups. So the big antlers of the bull elk 
They're great for the bull elk fighting with one another, trying to get access to mates, but they're horrible for bull elk as a group trying to avoid wolves in crowded wooded areas. They limit their mobility, make them much more likely to be caught and killed by predators. So the fact is, we can often achieve vastly better outcomes for all of us if we adopt policies that prevent individuals from doing what would be best for them individually. And that's at the heart of the enlightened rule of government. Uh, I don't think that's a widely appreciated view. I think if that view comes to be widely appreciated, then, yeah, I think it's quite possible that Darwin's insight will have eventually emerged as the one that Trump's the one erroneously attributed by many of Smith's disciples to him. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that particular prediction and the economics profession as a whole, and also looking at how, should I say, the media, other kinds of elites have reacted to the economics profession since the global financial crisis of 2007-2008. Would you say that people need more knowledge of economics versus less? And I say this because when you look at that, when you look at some of the negatives, it's easy to conclude one way. But on the other hand, I mean, reading the economic naturalists and some of the intuitive grasp that comes from the knowledge of economics in social situations, I am of the opinion that, yes, we need more knowledge of economics. I mean, when I look at why bridal dresses cost more than a normal dress or why the email of Nigerian scammers are always written in unintelligent prose, and so many other beautiful explanations that you've offered us over the years. I'm tempted to argue for more knowledge of economics. Where do you fall on this scale? Yeah, that, that's a, a well-put question. I can imagine that question being put in two different ways. Do economists on balance do more harm than good? Uh, that would be a harder question for me to answer because I think many economists are erroneously wedded to the view that individual incentives uh, always and everywhere produce the best possible results and therefore we ought to get government out of the way always and everywhere and let people do what they want. I think if that's the view of the economists in charge, they do more harm than good. If we ask would economists do more harm than good if they adopted a more nuanced view, one that recognized that individual interest often is in harmony with the broader good, but one that's often in conflict with it, and that there are simple incentive mechanisms we can adopt to bring greater harmony between individual and collective incentives in those cases. The potential for economists to do good is unimaginably great. I've begun to tap that potential. I think just as a closing example, think about the carbon tax. That's the biggest example of gross political malpractice that I can think of. If we had started decades ago with a heavy carbon tax, we would not be even talking about global warming today. The only reason people put CO2 in the air is that it's expensive to filter it out and find other ways to produce things that don't emit CO2. If we had a stiff tax on CO2, and if we took the proceeds of that tax and gave them back to the people who paid the tax in a progressive fashion, most of the revenue would come from high-income people worldwide. The top 10% of the income distribution emits more than half of the emissions worldwide. So people under a progressive rebate scheme, under a, a revenue-neutral carbon tax, would have big incentives to switch to alternative products and methods that used much less carbon. And most of them, 90% of the population probably, would get more money back each month in a rebate check than they paid in tax. And the rich who would be net payers of the carbon tax on balance would get most of the benefits from it since it's their property that's disproportionately at stake in warming damage. So it's just a win-win-win proposition and economic analysis explains clearly why it is and people don't understand that or haven't taken the time to explain that and so we don't get the benefit of it. In the light of that, would you then argue for more influence of economics on policy or less? And I say that with regards to other disciplines of the social sciences. I don't want to draw you into any particular controversy, but we are seeing 
the influence of other social theories like critical theory and how some people argue there are no objective truths and, you know, etc. So would you argue for more influence of economics on policymaking or less? Yeah, I have a ready answer to that question, and it's that I would strongly advocate for more influence, and that's in part because I think the profession is moving quite palpably toward a broader view of human behavior, one that was missing for much of the 20th century. So mm -hmm. the behavioral economics revolution, which began here at my home university at Cornell, and which has resulted in Nobel Prizes for at least three or four economists now, including my former colleague, Richard Thaler, who is probably the founding father of behavioral economics. The economics profession now is giving policy advice that I think has enormous potential to improve the human condition. So I, I would say definitely we should be relying more heavily on what the economists have to say. And not just mm. because I am one. Yeah. So finally, what I know you have described the consumption tax as your biggest idea, which I disagree with, by the way. I think <laughs> I think your work has so many big ideas. But for the purposes of our audience and also me on the show, what's the one big idea that you are pretty excited about right now and you would like to see spread everywhere? I think the idea of relying more heavily on what are called Peguvian taxes, this is an old idea really due to A.C. Pegu, a British economist who published the idea in 1920, uh, tax harmful behavior. We could raise all the revenue we need for the very most expansive vision of a public sector anyone has ever offered by taxing only behaviors that cause undue harm to others. If we did that, we would kill two birds with one stone. Those are behaviors that ought to be occurring at much lower levels anyway, so we would discourage those behaviors. But we would also be raising revenue that could pay for investments and services that are of enormously more valuable than the expenditure streams they would be replacing. So yeah, I think there's cash on the table. There is free money. There's just an enormous windfall awaiting us if we would just see that simple pattern of facts out there. This is Ideas on Trap podcast, and I have been in conversation with my favorite economist, Robert Frank of Cornell University. Thank you so Toby. much, Robert. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Toby, it's been my pleasure entirely to talk to you today. Thanks so much for having me on. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasontrap.com.